That's what I think the small companies can do better than any large, entrenched, lazy uh, monopoly company is think fast, move fast, and also take risks. The Bay Area landscape is still covered with large tech companies and countless tech startups, but the map is increasingly dotted with biotech startups. Apple is making constant strides in healthcare, so much so that Tim Cook recently said there will be a day we look back and say Apple's greatest contribution to mankind has been in healthcare. And believe it or not, Google's DeepMind is leading the field in protein engineering. Today, humankind is experiencing a revolution, a revolution in science that will save and transform our lives. From microbiome manipulation to genomic sequencing, biotechnology promises an exciting future. But what does it really take to build a biotech startup that will last? In comes my next guest, Brian Kahn, who has served as the CFO of numerous biotech companies over two decades where he has raised over $300 million for his companies and completed 20 M&A deals. He's seen it all. In labs where stress levels are at an all-time high, where millions are burned before a product is seen in market. Today, Brian is the CFO of genomic sequencing startup Quantipore, is co-founder of a synthetic biology company Levadura, and is an advisor for VC firm General Inception. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Now let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're joining us. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves. I'm your host, Sarah Chen, and today it is my absolute pleasure to have someone I've known for quite a while now, the amazing Brian Khan, who is CFO of Quantipore at the moment. And today we will be unpacking quite a fair bit from his career to the world of biotech to everything he thinks about the role of CFOs and scaling a startup. Brian, how are you today? Thanks so much for joining me. Great. I'm a little nervous that you said CFO for Quantipore at the moment. You know something that I don't about? <laughs> well... You know, you're a man with many hats, so this might be the thing of the moment. So let's get started here, Brian. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you've been in this business for 20 years now. We were talking about that. It's two decades. Tell us a little bit about what got you to this point and why biotech? So I would say luck is probably the largest factor in almost everything I've done. I thought about, I thought about how I got into this industry and it was through a dinner that my wife and I had with a coworker of hers whose husband was in the Navy with a guy who was a chief operating officer of a little antibody company in north in a town north of San Diego. And we were just talking about this and that. And he mentioned that this this company was looking for a CFO. I was the controller of a dot-com company just as the bubble was bursting and I thought it was time to move. So he introduced me to his friend. His friend introduced me to the founder of the company. I was wholly unqualified for the job. I didn't know anything about biotech. I didn't know what an antibody was. I mispronounced everything that I read up on before going into the interview, but there was just really good personal chemistry between the founder and myself, and, and I got the job. And I remember vividly the weekend before my first day, the general counsel, a guy named Roy, called me up at home and said, 
wear a suit on Monday, we're selling the company. So uh, <laughs> on Monday, the banker flew in and we started putting the pitch together. So that was a great way to get a quick immersion in antibody technology and biotech in general is to put a pitch deck together and start to build a data room. And then I think it was Wednesday of that week, maybe it was Monday of the following week, we had the um, acquiring company come in and and do a whole management presentation. And I don't think I've ever faked anything as as strongly as I did on that day, but I got through it. Ultimately, the deal fell through because the founder didn't didn't want to sell the company. And I think we had two other offers in the coming couple of years, and he couldn't let go of his baby. So Mm. uh, that kind of led to... Uh, the, the company was doing very well and it was growing, I think, too fast for the founder. He was trying to run the company the way he did when it was, you know, a 20 person company and literally would count cars in the parking lot at seven o'clock at mm-hmm. night. And it created a lot of stress in the management team because we were growing at 20 to 30 percent organically. And it just put stress on every system and a lot of stress on him. And I remember it was June in 2002, I was standing at the fax machine outside his office. I heard him yell. And the next thing I know, he's being airlifted out of the office to the hospital. And general counsel and Roy and myself were in a conference room dividing up the company in terms of who was going to manage what. Because Dave, the founder, was gone. He wasn't coming back. He lived, but he couldn't come back to work. He was just too damaged. So I got to ran, run marketing, product management, uh, and tech service for a year until we sold the company, which I would say was probably the most impactful experience of my life. Because mm-hmm. I, got, I, I had to really get involved in every aspect of the business. And I think that that's when my addiction to defocus started and, and doing lots of different things because it's, it's, I think it makes me a better CFO knowing every aspect of the business. And, and since then, I've always made people on the finance team go on sales calls with the salespeople and work a day in the lab if, if it can be done. Because so I think it's, it's important for everyone to know what the business is about. And what brought you all the way into, you know, just bring us up to speed here with regards to the different chapters that you've had. You know, you were looking at biobased chemicals at one point, and then you've really done the full array, right? From medical devices all the way to genomic sequencing. So how did you, as you know, uh, someone who didn't exactly come from a scientific background, get up to speed with what was necessary for you to really do well in, in your different roles? And how did this chapter, you know, head over to the next chapter and so on and so forth? So, uh, when I talk to younger people in accounting and finance and they ask me, I think I was a fairly young CFO, I was in my mid-30s, how did I get there? And my answer is, and I mean this seriously, is I was not a very good accountant. I, I didn't enjoy accounting, which made me want to get out of that part of the profession as quickly as possible. And the only way to get out is to move up. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so becoming a CFO was my goal, not because I was particularly ambitious as I just didn't want to do accounting anymore. So to do that, you know, if CFO really needs to be in a small company, in some ways a co-CEO in some instances, certainly an operations person when it's needed, a biz, biz dev person when it's needed. So I, I think that's uh, for a small company, that's, that's a necessity. In terms of all the different experiences I have, I think that's 
in some ways an, an attribute of the San Diego business community. It's, it's a small company town. You don't see a lot of big pharma. We are sort of a farm system for the Bay Area and Boston. A lot of mm-hmm. small biotech companies are birthed in San Diego out of the University and Research Institute and then get swallowed up by Genentech or Biogen or some of these you know, huge pharmaceutical companies. So people like me churn through a lot of different companies. But there is a massive amount of scientific expertise in San Diego. I think we rival any other region in the world. So there's lots of new things happening and, and they all reach a point where they need somebody to help with growth. I don't think of myself as just finance. I try to shepherd small companies into the next stage, whether that's commercialization, manufacturing, sales, you know, all the things that come with going out of the lab and into business. So when you pick, I guess, each chapter, if you, if you were to, you know, it's been uh, two decades, right? If you were to reflect upon it, I know this might be the first time that you're doing it in a while, but how did you make a choice in terms of a lot of these companies, when they started out and you joined, it was very nascent. The vision of the CEO was perhaps to some people uh, a little bit far-fetched. Perhaps, you know, there's a fine line between brilliance and and sanity, as they always say, right? But how did you make a decision on which ship to sort of ride in? I would, that more the team than the, the idea. I'm not savvy enough to discern what technology is going to make it and what's not. But I think what I do have is a pretty good read on people and meeting the management team and even you know rank and file people is, is really important. And then things kind of go from there. So I've sort of followed people that I've enjoyed working with or for, and the experiences are sort of a function of that, not the other way around. So for, for example, when, when I joined Verdesign, it was I had worked with Bill. In the past, right. and and we actually had a very good re- working relationship with the previous company, and I knew of him as a very creative thinker and a person who was receptive to new ideas. and And we were peers at the other company, and so working with him was what I went for. And it just as a byproduct of that, it was a cool technology and a cool opportunity, and you know, you make the most of it, right. You know, want to talk a little bit as well in terms of the different technologies that you're humble enough and modest enough to say that it's it's hard to discern. And the fact that was it you were telling me 97% of all biotech startups fail, right? No, 90, 97% of all new drugs don't make it through phase three. So from discovery to, you know, clinical market. or market, um, right. yeah, 97% of them don't make it. And right. it's... But if I I'm, think I have the numbers right, $2.7 billion per drug, 10 to 15 years to make it. And the individual effect on five-year survival rates is is very small in the single-digit percentages on average. So it's right. a lot of work, a lot of risk, and a lot of money and time for... But, but you know... Everybody wants to live 11% longer, right? So it's important to people, but it's expensive. Yeah. So, you know, my question to you is, as you're thinking about this, right, as you're thinking about the likelihood of a success in the work that you do, especially in backing, you know, grand, but great, of course, noble visions, how do you keep going when it seems like the science isn't working? I think I take cues from other people who are neck deep in, in the 
R&D part of the company. I, like I said, I, and I'm not being humble, I really can't tell what technology will work and won't. I, I can imagine it if it does work, working in the market. I think I, I have that perception. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for example, at Quantipore, the things we're doing are at the atomic scale. I, I don't understand how, how these molecules behave. But the, but the general value proposition, I totally get. And I understand the market landscape. And I can see if this does work, which it seems seems like like it will be very disruptive in the market. So how do I maintain my optimism that's going to work? I, I talk to scientists all the time. And sometimes I'll, I'll kind of look them in the eye and say, is this going to work? I, I think because I'm honest with other people about money and things like that, they're, they're honest with me. And they'll say, I don't know if they don't know, or it's, it's looking good today. So it's just a constant uh, gut check on things. Right. And and this is the challenge of biotech, right? You know, I think there's a lot of craze right now with, you know, so, sort of software as a service, the rise of enterprise and all that. And it it yeah. seems, you know, with the rise of SPACs and all these things, it seems like, oh, uh, we're in this time that it, it's sort of a compression of the developments that we'll see in, in terms of technology. But it is very different for the world of biotech. And, and you know, you sort of insinuated part of that as we were talking about the science of it. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you see to be the difference here in terms of how, you know, leaders lead within these two different uh, spectrums of technology. Well, first of all, in, in biotech, some things will fail. There's, there's no amount of money or genius that will make biology do what it doesn't want to do. In, in engineering type technologies, that's not the case. And we have some tech investors in biotech companies that I've been in and they, they have a hard time with that because an engineering problem could almost always be solved with, with money and resources and expertise. It, that's not the case in biology. This is discovery. So it, it is hard for certain investors and you know other people of the general public, I think, to wrap their heads around the fact that things are going to fail. Failure is absolutely an option and you want to fail sooner rather than later. Take a drug, for example. You do not want to fail when you're in the clinic doing a safety study and killing people. So you want to fail sooner than that with in vitro assays or, or small animals or things like that. And that's, I think that's kind of an ethos in drug development is, is fail early. So, and that's not the ethos in Silicon Valley technology type businesses. Yeah. And, and I, I find that interesting, uh, you know, sort of thinking about just building in biotech, right. And what it takes and, and, sort of the different tenets and, and lessons that some of the entrepreneurs have, have shared with me as well. You know, and one of it is have a high tolerance for failure, but not incompetence. How do you think about that? And, you know, what would you say from the, you know, different chapters that you've had in biotechnology? What have you learned through some of your successes and some of your failures? So I think the, yeah, so I had one experience where, I had to bankrupt a company because we couldn't raise money. And, and I think that's an unforgivable sin in drug development. Not Maybe not other parts of biotechnology. So we had, this was in 2008, I joined this company that had, we had cured diabetes, type 1 diabetes in mice and in primates. But we had not taken the therapy to an IND or investigational new drug application with the FDA. And we'd burned through about $60 million of cash. A lot of it was wasted. And then the global financial crisis hit. And 
I had just come out of Millipore, which was a very large company that printed money. And, and I was kind of new to venture fundraising at the time. And I just couldn't get it done. And we were a public company, which was challenging for venture as well. And so in 2009, we just simply couldn't raise cash. And to this day, it bothers me that maybe people with juvenile diabetes are not getting treated because we could not bring that therapy to the clinic. And it was, it was very promising technology. So that, 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 I guess that was incompetence. And like I said, I think that's an unforgivable sin. It's fine to fail when the technology doesn't work you, and proof of concept fails. That's, I think that's, that's the, way, the way it's meant to be, but not for other reasons. And it's also unforgivable, like I said, to fail too late when people's lives are affected by a clinical trial. So what have you seen to be, I guess, the better ways of, of how some of the leaders and, and I mean, you, you know, you're part of management in some way. I think the way that I've seen you work, right? I've had the privilege of seeing you work as well as you take a very hands-on role. You're, you know, in, in some, some parts, co-CEO, as you said, you know, sort of offering the strategic angle to how do I drive this company? When's the right time to, ways, you know, how much dilution do we take? And because that has uh, long lasting effects to the future of the company, right? Who you bring on your board, all of these things matter. How, yeah. how has your thought process evolved in terms of just running companies yeah. and specific to biotech? And, you know, if, if you can also maybe draw the comparison of, is that different from folks that are running sort of the non-hard tech type businesses? Well, so you mentioned dilution. I'd say that's the, the number one misplaced fixation that, that founders get caught up in. 100% of zero is zero. There, there's, there's no percent of a number that's lower than 100% of zero. And you know, like I said, the unforgivable sin is to run out of money before you've proven that your technology can succeed or fail. So dilution be, should be secondary to funding adequately. And Everything takes longer and costs more than you think. It's just founders are born optimists. One of my CEOs, I won't name names, he has, he's known for saying, and then we're done. You know, we just have to get through <laughs> this and then we're done. And everyone laughs when he says that. And, you know, he, he, I don't think he believes it intellectually, but that's his attitude. And it's, it's actually an energizing attitude. We just, we have to bust through this thing, but it's not a way to manage your money. You know, you, you know you're not done, so you have to be able to resource the company beyond the and then we're done phase. So I I say almost every single founder I've worked with makes that mistake. And it takes a lot of coaching to say, you know, you have 40% of the company now. What's the difference between 25 and 20 if you're going for a billion dollar valuation later? You're going to be rich. And if you don't raise enough money, you're going to be poor. And it, it takes, it's an emotional thing with founders. I, I'm curious as to how you've evolved your thinking and approach as senior management in, in building within biotech. What have you, what are some of the hard lessons that you're taking beyond sort of uh, fail fast, right? And, and also not taking the, the concept of dilution too seriously. Well, just on a general management standpoint, you, one of your questions was the best advice I'd ever had. <clears throat> That was uh, actually from my dad, who was a nuclear engineer, which was a boys club in the 70s. And he told this was after I got out of college. He said, you know, the world loves 
the 25 to 35 year old man who's out there starting fights, rattling cages, causing a ruckus, but everyone gets tired of that after about 40 years old. So check yourself, you know, at some point. And I, I think I did. I, I am a sort of a confrontational person. I, I try not to be combative, but I think one of my strengths is I don't, I'm not timid about confronting things that might be difficult, but that doesn't mean you have to fight with people. But in my thirties, I probably fought with people when I didn't need to. And so to your question, in terms of my evolution, that would be, I think the most important thing just, just in working with teams is you can be honest and direct without hurting feelings, without, you know, causing alpha male battles and and all these things, but still tell people what they need to know. I'd say that's the most valuable evolution in my professional Mm. life. Yeah. And, and you brought up something. You don't believe that, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I've only known you for, I I don't think the last (laughs) decade, only in this decade. So I think you have a good, good amount of fire there. Good amount of fire and confrontation I think is necessary. Right. And yeah. You know, that's important as in the work that you do, which is super important, right? I think in biotech, like you said, this could really have a huge, it's, it's not an incremental app. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. uh, this could really impact people's lives. And, you know, I see your passion. I see why you get fired up, you know, because you want to get it to the finish line. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about your evolution. I want to talk about what from a larger landscape, right? From a macro perspective, what you've seen over the years in terms of from an investment standpoint, I was reading an article earlier today, actually, that says there's a huge perception that biotech companies fail at a much higher rate, you know, when they go public, but that's not true compared to non-biotech mm-hmm. companies. And, you know, there's this perception that it's it takes a lot longer and it's a lot more capital, but these days, because of the progress that we've all made, you know, things are getting better. And, and that's a positive. How have you seen, I guess, investor sentiment, the market evolved? And also, if you can touch a little bit on just the science of, of what you're seeing, right? How has that changed in the last two decades? So I, I, the, the main thing is change is constant in this industry, I'd say more than any other industry, even predating me joining the biotech industry, but I joined right around the time the first human genome was sequenced, and that really set off, you know, an avalanche of of evolution or of innovation. But not in terms of you know originally when the human genome was sequenced, people thought, okay, all the questions questions have been answered now or about to be answered. That's not at all the case. All that did was create a whole new universe of questions that had to be answered, which started off the proteomics revolution. And, and since then, it's been one wave after another. There have been you know, monoclonal antibody drugs, RNA interference drugs, CAR T therapy, and immuno-oncology, antisense drugs. There's just every couple of years, there's a new thing that's the greatest thing. And, and if you're on the outside looking in intermittently, you think, okay, biotechnology is over. They solved every problem. I, I, that's, we're not even close. So it's, I think for the next 50 years, it's, it's going to be this illusion of we're there and then we're done, but it's, but it's not ever going to happen. One thing that's different now, though, I think is the, the convergence of AI and biotechnology. This is relatively new. You mentioned AlphaFold2, the DeepMind project. I think this will radically change drug development permanently um, because... Drug in what way? 
So they'll be able to model protein drugs much faster and create larger libraries to screen so they can pick the optimal lead compound or lead protein out of a larger array of options and then bring them to the clinic much more quickly. Being able to, in silico, in a computer, model the folding of a protein, which is unimaginably complex. To do that without having to use biology to do it for you first is is a huge development. But then that's just one part of it. That's very front end. If you go to the back end, image processing for um, MRIs is completely changing radiology. Machine learned computer algorithm can see things in an MRI so much better than a um, radiologist or a clinician. Same with pathology. You know, you used to you do these stains and a pathologist would look and say, oh, there's cancer there and be wrong. I don't know what the statistics are, but a lot. And you give a stain to five different pathologists, you might get five different answers. So with with machine learning and computer image recognition, that's gotten so much better. So everything from the very front end of drug development to patient diagnosis um, and treatment plans uh, is being affected by this. The problem with that is now everyone is um, racing to put dot AI after the, the name of their company because investors love to follow other investors. So if you can say you have a technology stack in your, your platform, you'll raise more money than if you don't. Yeah. Well, the AI washing, I think, is is real. We're, we're seeing that certainly a yeah. lot. I mean, everything is even in, in just thinking about data, right? I think everyone has like an AI, you know, we use AI for this to get to the best. Even from a VC standpoint, everyone has an AI platform that gets us to the best deals. But well, when I do a cash um, forecast, I call it AI. I do it on Excel. <laughs> so that's, that's AI. <laughs> right. Yeah. And talking about funding, you know, this is something that we we talked about recently with the Regeneron. Leonard spoke about the problem that he thinks uh, Wall Street investors can have, which is the tip of the iceberg problem, right? The fact that investors will just want to see the concept and not care for too much of what's beyond the iceberg. And, you know, in some way, it's about them trying to simplify uh, and sort of have a mental note of, okay, this is where the bucket of quadrupore, the bucket of millipore, you know, sort of stands. Do you agree with this? And totally, if so, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a problem. You know, one side effect of COVID is everyone involved or able to say they were involved in diagnosis or drug development has raised money. So Regeneron made the antibody that worked. Um, right. As a company so called, the anybody cocktail, right, that President Trump used. That's right. Abcellera was a company that went out in the last six months or so, $7 billion valuation. Wow. They made one that didn't work, <laughs> you know, but they could say there's another company uh, in San Diego called Trilink that made the RNA that went into the Pfizer vaccine. Hmm. Good for them. You know, it's a great, but it doesn't mean that they're whole business model is better than anyone else's, but they they went public and I think their valuation is 10 to $12 billion. And good for them. I'm very happy for them. But it does, it's not indicative of what their long-term value is. And that's that's a problem in speculative investing is everyone follows what the latest trend is. No, that's not a biotech right. phenomenon. That's everywhere. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of what I was also getting to that with what investors tend to do then is as they're thinking about this, right, putting a bucket of where 
you know, my investment in this startup should be. So you're, you know, you're addressing diabetes, continue addressing diabetes. And what, what it sort of connotes as well is the fact that they want investors, especially those that have uh, controlling stakes, want to influence the management to stay focused on one thing. But Leonard from Regenerant says that this is the worst advice, especially in biotech. What, what do you say to that? I'm- Starting to really like this guy because I, I think <laughs> the same thing. You have to be ready to pivot. So at Levadura, the, the company that I founded with some of the Vertizine guys, the original thesis was cannabis is becoming legal everywhere. Plant extraction is, is an inefficient and low quality way to get a compound for use. And the ingredients market for cannabis is the fastest growing, you know, cookies and vape pens and things like that. So we should make it biosynthetically. We, we know that we know the compound, we know what CBD is, you know, we can engineer that into yeast. It's a good idea, but companies like Amaris and Ginkgo are doing the same thing. And they have, you know, hundreds of people and millions of dollars of equipment and a lot of dumb money went into cannabis early on and that money was lost. And so there was a retreat of investment capital in that. So the companies like Amaris and Ginkgo, who already had reserves, were able to press forward and all the little Levadura type startups were slaughtered. So we work on a pivot. We have a patent. We have a, a technology. We think it can do something valuable. It doesn't have to be in cannabis. It can be in other things. So Alex and I are working on a pivot and we're throwing the whole earlier business model away. And I think if we were dedicated and focused to one pursuit, we would be in the trash heap along with a lot of other biosynthetic cannabis technology companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it was the same thing for Regeneron, right? I mean, they're getting a lot of press right now, but it was a 25 year, 25 year journey to get yeah. to this overnight success. And they certainly pivoted a few times as well. And, and the lack of focus was actually one of the key strengths. And, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you, you talked about sort of the big players and how there was a lot of money into and you're competing with someone who has a lot more than you do. And the world of competition in biotech, as, as you are dealing with right now in Quantapore, with Illumina having what 90% of the market share? How do you think? About- yeah, it's, it's, it's almost all of it. Yeah. yeah. So as you know, I, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, startup founders here and I see my next guest coming on as well, who's leading companies that are trying to solve big problems, right? But of course, there will always be incumbents in some way, big names that sometimes you feel, how am I going to compete with them? How, how do you think about this, especially when they sort of feel like they have such a head start? So I did work for an Illumina type company 15 years ago, that was Merck Millipore. And at the time, they owned the the lab water industry providing purified, you know, purification systems for labs. I mean, they were the Kleenex of that industry and really good company. And I still have lots of friends there. And I think they're as well of a run company as I've ever, but not nimble at all. They moved in a straight line. They knew what they're going to do for the next 10 years. You could not bring an R&D project that didn't have at least a $20 million NPV and you know businesses that I've been you stitch together hundreds of million dollar NPV projects and build a business out of that and they so Millipore bought my company and that business unit didn't grow for three years after they bought us and we were wow. growing twenty five percent organically and again great company I don't have anything bad to say about Millipore but they just couldn't be nimble enough so what we did is we just followed all the research going on at the NIH 
and developed reagents to assist that research. And we're really quick to bring out new products. And when things didn't sell, we'd throw them in a dumpster and move on to the next product. It was just, it was probably not efficient, but it was very effective. So that's what I think the small companies can do better than any large entrenched, lazy, you know, uh, monopoly company is think fast, move fast, and also take risks. You know, if you're, if you, so Lumina's market cap is, I think, $55 billion. They can't do anything to risk that. You know, if, if they drop 10%, $5 billion has been lost. So they, they have a harder time taking risks. You know, if, if Quantipore goes down, $75 million has been lost. That's it. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to... Only, only $75 million. I don't think your investors will like to hear that though. <laughs> But well, now, you know, I, I think as we're speaking about, you know, that's, I think, great advice there in terms of thinking about uh, risk and what you can do as a smaller company. And I have my favorite segment of today as well, where I bring on a guest. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Sarah Richardson from Microbriar. And she is reshaping the bioengineering landscape and we'll talk all about, you know, her work, what she's doing, and also share some thoughts about what you said there on what next. Sarah, welcome. Good to see you. Hey, it's nice to see you. And Brian, it's really nice to hear your thoughts. I especially love when people involved with startups talk about the importance of luck. <laughs> we get a lot of advice yeah. from the, particularly me uh, getting mentorship as a first-time CEO from executives who have been in a couple of startups or who are ahead in their startup. And they can err on the side of presenting all of their successes as inborn and their failures as completely. Yeah. And so having luck acknowledged uh, to me reinforces why you've had success. You acknowledge luck, both good and bad. You have to be ready to to grab it when it happens. Yes. Putting yourself in the way of it. Absolutely. Also your note on redundancy as a strength in small groups that when your founder found himself unable to continue to be able to have a group that could jump on jobs, even though they were maybe reluctant to have uh, doled them out. We had no choice. As a, yes. And yeah. as a note to, to, to the smaller groups, to be able to plan for some of that ahead of time, to build some of that redundancy and also seems to be a, a strong signal from you on what to do for success. My company is pretty small. We're starting. And as Sarah noted, we are trying to change the landscape of bioengineering. Our specialty is in genetically engineering bacteria. Other people have not been able to genetically engineer where we select for which bacteria out of all the millions of bacteria it could be by ones that are naturally more inclined to be industrially productive. So we start Mm -hmm. further up the genetically engineering ladder towards economic feasibility than you might if you start with yeast or E. coli. So, but also from your talk with Sarah, I was so struck by your resilience as coming from a non-technical background and becoming synonymous with biotech yourself. One of my co-founders <laughs> came from years. a non- <laughs> <laughs> Only yes. 20 years. Still, you know, some people are in school for 20 years <laughs> just to be in biotech. Do you have advice for, one of my co-founders came from a non-technical ba- background and I am, Still, I remain stunned and in awe of how hard he threw himself into picking up as much tech as possible to help in the same way you help companies in administrative and financial and executive ways. But do you have advice for other people who 
have all of these great skills to bring to biotech, but might be intimidated by the idea that if they don't have a PhD in biochemistry, they, they're going to have a hard time in a small company. I I think you have to find a way to, to, I guess, fall in love with your team and the company and the solution you're providing. And then the, the immersion and the learning, I think just comes. I'm not, I'm not as intelligent as a lot of people I work with, but I, I definitely, I'm not being modest, but I definitely get very passionate about things. And that's in some, some ways a character flaw. That's probably why I wasn't a very good accountant, but I, I do, I do get infected by the enthusiasm of other people and, and the prospect of competing in the marketplace. Cause that's such, such a kind of a, dynamic phase to go into where you're kind of out in sort of a windstorm of different things that you can't predict. So I I would say I I don't, I don't have any techniques. I don't have any, you know, learning tools, but find a way to, whether it's the team, whether it's, you know, the technology, the market opportunity, being in a lab, whatever is find a way to, to fall in love with what you're doing and then you won't be able to stop yourself from learning. It just you can't stop it. I'm not trying to flatter you, but not having a PhD is no measure of intelligence. I would say sometimes a PhD is just an exercise in self-flagellation. How much punishment can you take? Not necessarily how smart you are. But I, I like that that answer for one of our philosophies appropriate to a group that does so much microbiology is that it takes a whole ecosystem to get a job done. And that's why I also wish to emphasize respect for people who come from different backgrounds, all joining in to get a job done. So I I don't tolerate in my own team. Well, I don't have a PhD. I'm not as smart as these other people. Everyone is pulling their weight. That's what's so awesome about startups is there, there's no time to be stuck up about your credentials. You know, it, it is a meritocracy type environment that if I have an idea here at Quantipore, people will listen to me. I, I have I actually have a patent in my name because of some idea, which is like my biggest point of pride. It's a great point of conversation. I think congratulations. You were asking me about my patent when you guys were investing in Vertizine, and I, I was pretty boastful about that. But it, but what it is is it's it's I think it's it's an attribute of startups to where. You know, a good idea can come from anywhere, even the finance guy who's, you know, mm-hmm. working on a fundraising pitch and kind of this light bulb goes off and he gets up out of his chair and goes and talks to the CEO and says, what about this? And the CEO goes, yeah, let's let's put that in a patent. I love your question there, Dr. Richardson. What would you advise CEOs in terms of inspiring people like yourselves? How, how did you, were, were there specific things that people you've worked with did to continue to inspire that passion for the vision? I'm not like everyone else. So I can't speak for, you know, how to inspire other people. But I think that, you know, the, the first thing for me, it's, it's listening and collaborating and not saying, you know, you're a chemist, you don't have anything to say about biology. You're an engineer. I don't want to hear what you have to say about, you know, meta- metabolic engineering, you know, e- even if they don't have a good idea, just that culture of let's work together. And I'm Sarah, I'm sure you you do that. And more than anything, I think that inspires people to throw everything they have into an effort. Love that. Well, Dr. Richardson, do you have any other questions before we head to the next segment? I was wondering about the discussion you had about AI 
I agree. Calling something machine learning has always been very hot. There's jokes about when it's in the lab, it's machine learning. When it's hitting the uh, investor pitch deck, it's AI. But in practice, it's really linear regression. And some of that is because the data is just so difficult yeah. to get. And a lot of the easy wins that attract attracted a lot of success and money, the data was either easy to gather or already there for some reason. Do you have any insight into how we can communicate as we move forward to investors and the founders themselves that the data we need to bring AI revolution to biotechnology, it's possible, but we need to be patient and gather it. And maybe we need to have the patience and the funds to put some of these data sets together. And that's where the risk is now, not in the technology, but in the data gathering. Yeah. So before you joined, Sarah and I were talking about some things. And one thing I coach first-time CEOs to do is when you're fundraising, and I hope no VCs are listening in right now, but you have to blur the line a little bit between what is and what can be and put a picture in their mind of, of, of your vision and not necessarily say we have these 25 really hard things to do and they're going to take two years, but, but you know, transport them into the future without lying. I don't suggest lying, but, but, you know, human beings, they want to hear a story and they want to be convinced. So don't focus so much on the difficulties, but, you know, get them, get them put where your head is with respect to the vision. That's, but, you know, the, the fact is there, there are companies out there that are making big promises and that's always been the case. And that makes it harder for companies that are doing things the right way. I, I won't, name any names, but I'm sure we probably both know who those guys are. And they say, you know, we are now using an AI technology stack to empower blah, blah, blah. And investors go, take my money, because that's what all the other VCs are doing. And they, they're they not going to get fired for doing what Mark Andreessen does. They're just not, <laughs> you know, even if it fails. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a, a never-ending battle. It's just, I mean... Sarah, we had the problem at Vertizine when we were raising money, when, you know, Amaris made these big promises about their scale up and it all flopped and yeah. we couldn't raise money because we called it the Amaris effect. And, and all the little synthetic biology companies called it the same thing. The Amaris effect, it just scared capital away. I, that's never going to change. It's a never ending battle. So just keep punching away. And like I said, you know, Put your future in the minds of the investor. Give them a reason. Thank you. To be that I, makes I like sense. Thank you. Don't take it too seriously. I say to channel your inner Elizabeth Holmes, but not too much. Just a little bit. <laughs> little bit. I, I don't know if that's a good example, though. <laughs> no, but it gets people's attention when you say it. And I try, you know, I like attention, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Sarah, I, Sarah Richardson, I, I have a question for you, if if that's not inappropriate. I, instead of doing what you're doing, why not come up with your own product and raise money to go to market yourself instead of enabling someone else to, you know, produce the billion dollar product? That's an excellent question. And my answer is that uh, as unpopular as it might be, we wanted to become a platform company. We're... Mm-hmm. A lot of our capital comes from very climate aware funders where they're patient 
they want us to make money because there's no way to change the climate landscape of the earth if it's not profitable. Mm-hmm. But they're patient. So we have the leeway to go establish the technology and potentially not as impactful climate ways. But then when it scales, it's massively climate impactful and they'll be mm-hmm. there to make sure we do both. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I did not want to get stuck in a silo where, as you say, VCs are very much like this was successful. So we will keep doing this. And if I'm successful in commodity chemicals and have to stay in that silo, I will not be, it will be more difficult to leverage the technology for agriculture, for mining, for bioremediation, for pharmaceuticals by applying ourselves as a platform company that can support people who already have the infrastructure expertise and capital to be in each of those silos with the common core they need, which in this case is domesticated bacteria. We hope to have an even broader. That's the strategy mm-hmm. we set out with. But companies can pivot given the need. That's right. We I have mean, not failed companies yet. Like, companies like Zymergen, Ginkgo, they, they do both, right? They enable other companies you know, to do their thing, but they also have their own programs and products. So you can do both. We're going, <laughs> yeah, we're going to try. We're going to try. We're doing well right now. We Our customers uh, bring us interesting problems and the bacteria stay as interesting as possible. And our mm-hmm. cost models are all very promising. We have a tech that we think can change the world. And I haven't been disabused of that notion yet. Well, someday I hope we meet in either the marketplace or somewhere along the road. <laughs> um Brian, she'll be out there hunting you for her next raise. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a yeast guy. You, you bacterial yes. system, you're the enemy. So, uh, All my graduate school work was in yeast, so we can find a common ground. Thank you, Dr. Richardson. Sarah, please feel thank free to you. connect with Brian later. But so good to yes. have you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you both. Uh, I'm very flattered thank to have you. been included. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, Brian, now we get to the fun part. Billion dollar questions where I get to ask you some really quick fire questions and you say what's the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? No, but no. let's do it. <laughs> okay, let's start. When you think of the word successful, who do you think of and why? Who do I think of? So I, I'm. this won't be any surprise. I, I love Elon Musk and what he's trying to do. He's not afraid to fail, probably for the same reasons the world loves him or hates him. He makes bold moves and he can crash a rocket and joke about it. I think that's just the world needs more people like that guy. All right. Good choice there. I don't know about him laughing about the rocket, though. He did. He made a joke about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if everyone is uh, always happy about his uh, reactions, like taking a spliff and all that. But, you know, I, I, I respect the guy. And of course, great things he's doing. Good choice. Good choice. Okay. Common misconceptions about you. So I I think a lot of people confuse confrontational with combative. And I'm I'm not a combative person. And I, I really work hard to not be combative. But because... I'll, I'll call somebody out on BS or, and I try to do it respectfully, but you know, people don't like to be called out. I'm not trying to start a fight. I just think that everyone works better together if we're all dealing with the same set of facts. That's the misconception that I like to fight with people. I do not like to fight, but I do want to confront things that need, need confrontation. Fair enough. Highest high. 
that was a tough one because I'm I'm a little jaded. I don't you know I don't, I, I don't go over the moon for every little thing because I've seen so many things fail. But I would say my highest high was in 2006. I was doing three acquisitions, buy side acquisitions at the same time, and one sell side acquisition. This was the sale of serologicals to Millipore. And it was more pressure than I've ever had to deal with. I actually went to the hospital for heart arrhythmia because I was having so much caffeine, not sleeping at all. But I was able to pull off those three acquisitions. I think the multiple on our valuation on the sale was 2x of those companies that we bought. So we spent somewhere around $100 million or so for those three companies and got a $200 million increase in the valuation on the sale. And it all just sort of came together. I think we completed the sale within within a month of... We completed the purchase within a month of completing the sale. That was, that was exhausting. Probably took five years off my life, but it was really thrilling to, to pull that off because it so many times it didn't seem like it was going to happen. Hmm. Persistence, a uh, quality that I know you two always have with you. Lowest low. That was the the company. It was called Micro Islet, the diabetes company. Mm. That was that was a bummer. That the the person you're talking to today would not let that company go down. I would have found some way to keep it alive until we found that the therapy did or did not work. And then, unfortunately, when the company was liquidated. The intellectual property went back to Duke University and it sat on the shelf. It never made it to the market. Now, today, there are a lot more small molecule therapies for diabetes. I don't, I don't think it would be competitive, but you know, 15 years ago, it could have saved lives, lots of lives, children's lives. So yeah, that still bothers me, but I'm not going to let it happen again. Yeah, well, make better mistakes tomorrow, right? That's what right. we always say. Since you've already addressed this one, best advice uh, you've been given, let me ask you, what's the worst advice you've been given? Hmm. I don't remember that on your list of questions. Well, I need to, you know, shake things up a little bit. Hmm. (laughs) So the problem is I tend to forget the bad advice. Ah. Okay. This, I'm just coming up with this right now. In the 90s, with my first controller job of a public company. The company I was with, we were losing money like crazy and doing deals all the time. And and I was always the person processing the deals. And the CEO came into my office and handed me this really bad company to buy. And I said, this doesn't fit. We, we'll get no synergies out of it. It's going to be a drag. And he, and he said, yeah, but it'll confound our earnings report this quarter if we can announce this deal. And I I was in my early 30s and I admired the guy and I did it. And that was bad advice because it, it, it did not confound earnings at all. It just wow. eroded confidence in the company. Mm, that's interesting. That perhaps gives me a little bit of a telltale sign of why you confront people now because you want to do the right thing. Maybe, yeah you know, uh, rosy eyed, right? As, as a lot of us, you know, especially when we're young and we're starting out, it's like, oh, everything's great, but then you don't see what's beyond that. Okay, right. your biggest fear. Standing still. I, you know, I have many things going on. It's, it's not just because I love doing lots of different things, but I, I cannot sit still in the thought. I, I don't think I'll ever retire. Not because I need to work. I just don't, I don't, I don't want to sit still. 
Okay, you're fine. And this is the final one. You have a beautiful family. Lonnie has been a great supporter in, in your journey to raise your boys. What are the three qualities that you want your boys to have the most? As I told they you, I'm, I'm only giving you one, right? I need three. We already established that. No pre-establishing. No, follow the rules here. <laughs> okay. So number one is be courageous enough to be honest. Don't be liars or cowards. What I told I I told you this before. My middle son had some learning dis- disabilities as a kindergartner and first grader, and I just watched him struggle and work so hard to learn how to read and all these things. And he didn't think, you know, he said, "I'm not a smart person." And I said, "Well." You can't be the smartest person in the room. That's just, there's no guarantee. There's always somebody smarter, but you can, if you decide, and if you have the guts to always be the most honest person in the world. And over time, the world will reward you for that. And this kid just graduated from college with straight A's, has a job, is going to grad school and cannot tell a lie to save (laughs) his life. And I'd say, as a father, that's the thing I'm most proud of. I don't know if that was just his nature. Lonnie is also mm-hmm. a, an extremely honest person, so I don't take credit for it through one talk. But that's that's what I, the number one, I don't know what two and three are, but number one is be brave enough to be honest. Okay. Well, two more, just a quick, quick, what comes to mind when you, when you are pressured like right now to come up with something for your kids? I mean, I'm sure you want them to have more than one quality. <laughs> Okay, so develop some varied interests in life. I, I, I'm not one of these old guys who says these kids nowadays, blah, blah, blah. I think, Sarah, your generation is going to do great things. I'm looking forward to you fixing all the mistakes my generation has made. But I do see uh, younger people being much more singularly focused on things and not experiencing the mm-hmm. greater... The, the, the just the variation of the world. And I see that with my kids. And I wish, you know, you know, I've taken them to other parts of the world to try to expose them to things that are out of their comfort zone. And and so that would be number two is find things to do that are not just directed at, at getting rewards or compensation or whatever. And the final one? Find a good partner in life. And I don't care what kind of partner that is. It doesn't have to meet my standards, but find someone that uh, you can grow old with comfortably because that's really important. Fantastic. Well, I love that. What? Not that I'm going to grow old, but. (laughs) Never, right? You're going to, well, you're going to find some, you're going to sequence your genomes in some way. So you'll never be old, right? I mean, you're going to assault us for it, so. Well, I'm, I'm holding you. I'm actually going to put something in my brain that'll keep me alive forever. Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't already, you know, planted hair as he has. <laughs> uh, oh, being bald is much better than going bald, so I'm I'm okay with this. Although it does yeah. cause a little bit of reflection. It's got it's got a good bounce to it. It's got a good bounce to it. <laughs> well, Brian, thank you so much. This was a power hour. I mean, I've really like you know, pushed you to to really think hard here about the two decades that you've spent in building your career and, and what a career, what an exciting time to to be in biotech as well, to really be able to impact lives. And, and I think the world is coming to terms with that now. So really excited for you and what you're doing with Kiverdi and, and also the Australian company Imagine, right? That's the board you're on. A couple of others you don't know about too. I'll tell you about ah, some. Too many, too many to count. <laughs> 
Well, Brian, thanks so much for this. It was such a pleasure to have you on here. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. And join us again next week. I'll see you. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.